Hey guys, thanks for tuning in to part two of our series on why theology matters. Uh, today we're going to be diving into Calvinism, so here we go. As always, if you haven't subscribed to the channel, please do that. Uh, it helps me get the content out to more people and more people can get engaged into the conversation. Uh, and it's just a better time. So please hit that subscribe button if you haven't already. So uh, we all have filters and we kind of talked about that last week. It's unavoidable. Whether we realize it or not, everything that's happened in our lives helps shape our belief system and our ideas about God and about scripture. Uh, whether it's personal experiences, maybe it's traditions you had growing up, or maybe it's just stuff we've picked up along the way. We all have filters and it's unavoidable. We put them on scripture. Now, what's helpful as a believer is to understand that A, we all have filters, and then B, try to understand why we have them, what's helped shape them, so then we can begin to challenge these filters, tweak them a little bit, and figure out do they really line up with the person of God that we know or that we're beginning to know. Now, a little disclaimer here, the journey of shifting our filters or trying to fix them can be very uncomfortable for a lot of Christians, for a lot of believers. A lot of times the filters and or belief systems that we have, maybe we haven't taken the time to study them and really figure out why we believe this way. So a lot of times these belief systems really take root in our emotions or in our identity as a person or a believer or as a child of God. And because we haven't taken the time to study them, what happens is when we get confronted on them and we don't have hard factual evidence or scriptural evidence to back these belief systems up, we can be very confrontational combative even. We can act out in emotion, but not really rationally thinking and talking someone through scripture on why we believe what we believe. So we have to be careful not to just use our emotion as a sounding board for these belief systems, but to actually dig deep and say, this is why I believe this. It's okay if you disagree with me, but through my study, this is what I found and this is why I believe that. I think when we do that, we're going to have better conversations with people that maybe we disagree with. And at the end of the day, that's really what it's about is having better conversations, sharpening one another, not always trying to convince the other person or aha, I gotcha. Sometimes we may stalemate, but it's good to have these honest conversations with people who differ from us in opinion or in belief system, but you won't have good conversations if all we base our belief system on is emotion. We have to actually dig up good scriptural evidence for this is why I believe what I believe. So after saying all of that, let's dive into part two of our series on theology, Calvinism. Now this is probably going to have to be broken up into multiple videos, even though we are just talking about one system of thought here, Calvinism. It's pretty deep. It's pretty engaging. So I don't want to just try to cram it all into one video and hopefully we all get it or I might even miss stuff. So we're probably gonna have to split this up into two, hopefully not three, but at least two videos. So if I miss anything in this first video, hold on. It's probably going to get touched on the second video. Now, just to get this out of the way, the main core idea of Calvinism is God's sovereignty or God's complete control of everything, all time, all universe. God is in control at all times. That is at the core of Calvinism. Now, we may not touch that 
too much today, but it is a central theme. So everything we talk about today will relate to that. And I guarantee you we'll get to that idea definitely by next video. Now, when I say the word Calvinism, the first thing you might think of is John Calvin, and you would be correct in thinking that. John Calvin is credited with kind of forming the idea of Calvinism. He was a French theologian and pastor in about the 1500s, and even though he kind of formalized or modernized Calvinism into what it is today, he actually wasn't the first person to have a lot of the core ideas that Calvinists have. In fact, Calvinism, it's kind of funny saying the name, but Calvinism is actually much older than John Calvin himself. In fact, the early Catholic Church was really influenced by a lot of these Calvinist ideas because it was older than John Calvin. A lot of it came from a guy named St. Augustine or St. Augustine as you may call him. St. Augustine was a philosopher long before he was a Christian and he's widely credited for having a lot of his core ideas rooted in Greek philosophy. This was around, let's say, 400 AD. I think some like the late 300s, early 400s. Now I know this might be a little bit more history than you wanted, but St. Augustine was mentored by a guy named Plotinus who is actually hailed as being one of the greatest reworkers or rewriters of Plato's early works. So I say all that to say that a lot of Calvin's beliefs that came from St. Augustine, that actually came from Plotinus, that were actually kind of birthed out of Plato, a lot of the Calvinist ideas may have been birthed out of early Greek philosophy. Now, to a lot of you, this may sound unreal or really jarring to you hearing that a Christian belief system may have had its roots in Greek philosophy. And the reason we don't really talk about it too much is because myself included, most Christians, we don't have a firm grasp enough on Greek philosophy to even understand when it's kind of infiltrated our belief systems and or our theology. So that's why we may have missed it or why you may have never heard a pastor talk about it before, because we don't really even understand what Greek philosophy is for those of us who are kind of unstudied in that arena enough to know that it's kind of baked in to our theology. So moving on, here are three foundational ideas that are central to Calvinism. Number one, God is immutable or unchanging. Number two, God is impassable or without emotion. And number three, God is timeless. He exists outside of time. Now, it's worth noting these three ideas were not formed through the reading of the scriptures. What they actually were were three ideas that Greek philosophy asked itself when it said, okay, if there is a God, what would be some three main characteristics of this God? They came up with these three things and then began to use that as a filter to lay over top of scripture to better understand who God is. So let me just say that one more time, just in case you missed it. They took philosophy and said, okay, what are three big ideas about God that we can try to formulate in our brains? And they came up with these three ideas. God is unchanging. He lives outside of time and God is emotionless. They took those three ideas and they said, okay, those sound good to us. That's what we think a God would be ultimate creator of the universe. Now let's take these three ideas and let's lay them over top of scripture so we can better understand scripture. Hopefully that's raising some red flags for you already because they are using philosophy to test scripture, not the other way around. 
man, I don't know if anybody else has an issue with that, but I can see how that could get you in a world of trouble from a theological standpoint. But let's just get back to these core three ideas really quick. So the first one is that God is immutable or unchanging. So this concept can get a little confusing because of the slant that some people will try to put on it. Now, we know God's nature is unchanging. We see that in Hebrews 13, 8. However, just because God's nature doesn't change doesn't necessarily mean God can't change his mind. And I think we have to be able to distinguish between those two key concepts because a lot of Calvinists will say that they are one and the same. However, I do not think they are. I can be genuinely a good person, and that may be my nature, but it doesn't mean that because I am that person that I can't change my mind about certain ideas or opinions that I might hold. So I don't think it's fair to say that because someone's nature is unchanging that they don't have the ability or the right to change their mind. But that would be a sticking point for a lot of Calvinists. So just if, if you have Calvinist friends that try to bring that up to you, just, just remember that those two things may not be one and the same. We may have to separate both of those so we can have a constructive conversation about that. So we talk about God changing his mind. Well, we actually see that happen multiple times throughout scripture. Like uh, when Moses pleaded with God up on the mountain not to destroy the Israelites because God was just kind of over it. He was done with it. He was ready to get rid of them. And Moses pleaded to God not to destroy them. And it said, scripture says that God relented. And we know the story. He didn't destroy the people. But Moses was able to shift God's mind on that particular issue. Or another example in Genesis 6-6 that's kind of even more tragic. In Genesis 6-6, God says that he regretted making man. Ah, yikes, that's tough. And that's a, that's a hard scripture to read. And we can go through that and understand how man had gotten so evil at that time that God felt that way. But what I think is key to focus in on is that God regretted. He changed his mind about creating man in the first place. That's a big deal. So we have two, at least two of those examples where it shows God changing his mind about certain things. Now, I know there are a lot of other examples in scripture where God changes his mind. Instead of me just rattling off like 10 of them, I challenge you guys, throw them in the comments below. Show me in other places in scripture where you found that God changed his mind about a particular thing, person, event. Let's throw them in the comments and let's see what we can come up with. I guarantee you there's a ton of them, so I'm kind of excited to see what you guys have. Now, a typical Calvinist response to this idea might be, well, those scriptures can't mean that God actually changed his mind. They have to mean something else because for God to change his mind, it would violate the very nature of God. But remember, they're pulling the idea of the nature of God from philosophy, from those three points that they then laid on top of scripture. So they can kind of get into a feedback loop here. Well, you can't change the nature of God because it's the nature of God. Yeah, but where did you get that idea that that was his nature? Oh, well, we just kind of came up with it. And then it's just this vicious cycle. So in a nice way, we can challenge our Calvinist friends and say, okay, but how are you so sure that that is the nature of God? And I think that's really what we're talking about in this series is kind of coming back and saying, what is the nature of God? Rather than just saying, hey, some Greek philosophers thousands of years ago came up with these three ideas, let's just run with it and lay it over top of scripture. I would say during this age of technology, we have more tools than 
ever before to really sharpen one another and go back to the original question, what is the nature of God and does it fit with my belief system or have I just kind of been in this feedback loop? So some good questions to ask yourself. The second idea we're going to go over is that God is impassable or a better way to say it, God is without emotion. So Greek philosophers were really known for being more stoic, more held back. They didn't believe emotions were a good thing. They actually believed that emotions were kind of a lower thing. So they strived in their own personal lives to really go without emotion, to try to get to a place in their personal journey where emotion wasn't even a part of their daily life. So it only makes sense that in this idea that they believe that emotions were negative and something to be looked down upon, that the creator of the universe that they're trying to form these ideas about, well, he too must clearly not operate with emotion because that's beneath us. And if it's beneath us, it has to be beneath him. So God therefore has no emotions. I hope you're kind of seeing here where they're drawing some of their ideas from and how philosophy played a key role into understanding, at least for them, who God was. Good news is you don't have to look very hard in the uh, scriptures to find God having emotions. In fact, if you just wanted to use the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you just use Jesus, his life, uh, just his life alone, you will find that God, God in man being Jesus, had ton of emotions, tons of them. So once again, that's just Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. I would challenge you guys, again, let me know in the comments where you see God showing emotion. It's all over the place, but I would really like to see what you guys come up with. Put them down in the comments. Areas in scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, doesn't matter, where you see God showing clear emotion. And let's, uh, since we already talked about the Gospels, maybe let's take it out of Jesus' uh, arena for a minute and let's just say God the Father. Let's go into scripture and show where God the Father showed emotion. And the third and final concept I want to talk about today is that God is timeless or he lives outside of time. Now this can get a little tough too because it's kind of hard to wrap our minds around time and what it is and what it isn't and what eternity is and what's after this and what was before, before. It kind of boggles the human brain. So we'll try to just trudge through this. So the idea of a creator God, you know, ultimate ruler of the universe living outside of time seems totally 1000% logical. I get it. I totally understand where you're coming from. A God that created the universe, why would he need to limit himself or put himself in the box of time when he's much bigger than that? He existed before time and he will exist after time, whatever that's like. But So why would God have to limit himself into that box of time? Totally logical concept, totally get it, 100%. And my only issue with that is, if I kind of put my logical brain to the side for a second and think about the nature of God, my only issue with that is, is I and many other Christians believe that God is relational, that he wants to have a relationship with us. Many of you who were saved in altar calls or what have you, were probably drawn to the idea that Jesus Christ wants to be your personal Lord and Savior and have a personal relationship with you. For a lot of us, that's what kind of pulled us into Christianity is that idea of having a personal relationship with the creator of the universe. So my logical brain wants to tell me that God exists outside of time. However, my, my heart, my spiritual brain, if you will, wants to say that God wants to come inside the box of time, if you will, to have relationship 
with us. I like to think of it like this. Think of your prayer life. Um, if God is totally outside of time and never steps into time with us, that means that our prayers that go out are just kind of hitting a cosmic answering machine and God's already heard it or he'll get to it when he gets to it. We're not actually praying and having a conversation, a relationship with a physical person, a physical being. We're just kind of shooting stuff out into the atmosphere and hopefully one day God picks it up or he's already heard it or whatever. That puts a big downer on on a lot of our relationship with Jesus if that's kind of how we think about it. So if I have a personal relationship with Jesus, I then also have to believe that he hears me, he sees me, he knows where I'm at inside of time, and he chooses to step inside of time with me so that he can understand and experience what I'm experiencing now. For me in my personal journey, that draws me in, that keeps me going every single day to know that I have a personal relationship with God rather than just a relationship to some guy who's out there in the cosmos somewhere, uh, you know, the white beard, the thing that we all think of when we think of cartoon God and whatever. It's so much easier for me to come back to personal relationship than it is a God who exists outside of my experiences rather than a God who lives inside of them, not because he has to, but because through relationship he chose to. The alternative seems kind of scary to me because if God is just outside of our experience, then we are really just pawns on a chessboard where God already knows the end of the game. And once again, that doesn't really point to relationship. Everything I see about Jesus's life points to relationship. So once again, I know we're talking about kind of high concepts here, but I think it's important to try to pick them apart a little bit so we understand God's motivation. Because if we understand God's motivation, I think we'll better understand his nature. I believe one of God's key and foremost characteristics of his nature is that he is relational first. Now I'm getting ahead of myself, that's probably gonna be more in video two, but just remember that God is relational first. And just to kind of draw that back into scripture, we see God doing things like sending angels to investigate things about God's people. Well, why would he need to send angels to investigate if he already knew the beginning or the end or what have you? Maybe it's because through relationship, God was experiencing time with us at that point. Once again, kind of a high concept, but God sent angels to investigate something. Very interesting. Or another example is when the nation of Israel was just completely off the rails, God said that he was shocked and he never imagined that they would do the things that they were doing. God was shocked by something that people did. That breaks my theology in half because I've always said, well, I, ne I can never surprise God. He's never shocked at anything I do, but it's there, it's in scripture. He was shocked at what they were doing. He could have never imagined that they would have done that because through relationship, God decided to be inside of time with us, with the people he's having a relationship with. Does that mean that he can't step outside of time? Absolutely not. He's God. He can do whatever he wants. But if God's main motivation is relationship, it makes a ton of sense to me how he could be shocked and how he could be surprised because he chooses to be shocked and surprised because he chooses to be in relationship with us. Man, talk about the ultimate lowering yourself. Uh, we talk about it all the time, you know, how Jesus lowered himself. He gave up his deity just so he could come down, spend time with us, tell us who we really are, get rid of our sins, die on a cross. He did all of that because his motivation was relationship. And I don't wanna go into like preaching a whole nother sermon, but man, it is 
super deep when you start to understand one of the primary, if not the primary objectives and motivation of God is relationships. So this is probably a good place to stop. We'll definitely dive in deeper in the next video on Calvinism, and we'll really get into what you were probably thinking we we're gonna talk about today, which is the five points of Calvinism, or better known as the tulip, and we'll get into what that is more next video. So let me know in the comments below if you have any questions about what we talked about today. Like I said, we're gonna dive in way deeper next video, but if you have any questions or comments about what we talked about today, maybe there's something I missed, maybe there's something you disagree with, please put those comments down below because the best part about making these videos is opening up this conversation and being able to engage with you guys so that we can sharpen each other. I'm not under any idea that I have this all figured out. I feel like I have tried to pull back some of my filters and understand where they're coming from. So I'm at where I'm at right now at this current point in my journey, but who knows, in a year I may believe some different things, but I won't have healthy constructive beliefs if I can't engage in good constructive conversations with people. So I'm hoping that that's what this channel and what these videos are doing, opening up better and bigger conversations so we can get to know who God and who Jesus are, not just theologies, but who the person, the motivation, and the characteristics of God and what they are. Really hope you guys are getting a lot out of this material. I know for me, it's been super beneficial going back over it again, kind of uncovering some of the things that I thought I knew and understanding them a little bit better. I'm scratching my heads at other things. So I really hope this material and this content is good for you guys. I hope you're learning from it. I know I am, and I cannot wait to see what you guys put in the comments below, and I will see you next week.